Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. I hope you're doing well. I am currently on the East Coast, freezing my ass off. It was like eight degrees the other night, which is not okay. It's not okay. I just want you to know, we just moved from Southern California, Los Angeles, where the high of today is 65. And then next week, I think it's like 75. Eight degrees. I can't handle it. It's actually right now, it's like 32 or something, which is balmy, really, for this region in Pennsylvania. And we're going to be moving to Louisville in a couple weeks, and it's pretty comparable to where we are now. So if you are freezing and you hate to be cold, you are not alone. I am here throwing a tantrum right beside you. This week, we are digging into fairies. Finally, We have touched on it a few times, but we haven't really gone down the fairy rabbit hole. So hold on to your butts. It's about to happen. Most of us have been taught that fairies are these adorable little creatures that flutter gracefully about and make all of our wishes come true. But the reality is much, much different. My guest this week, Morgan Daimler, is a witch, writer, teacher, and one of the world's foremost experts on all things fairy. I know. I'm so excited about this. She's written dozens of books on fairies, paganism, magical practices, Irish myth, and folklore. Her writing has appeared in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Pagan Dawn, Naming the Goddess, and Witches and Pagans magazine. Following a path inspired by the Irish fairy faith, blended with neo-pagan witchcraft, Morgan also teaches classes on Irish myth and magical practices, fairies, and related subjects in the United States and internationally. In short, she is a badass. I broke this interview up into two parts because in part two, I want to spend a little bit more time telling you some of my experiences with the fae. So in this part, part one, we talk about the different names for fairies, some fairy basics, some true fairy encounters, the history of fairies and other creatures like vampires and aliens, and more. I've been excited about this interview for a long time, and I'm so excited to share it with you. And I can't wait to hopefully chat with Morgan again about many, many more things. She's very easy to go down the rabbit holes with because of her expertise and experience in so many woo areas. So let's talk about the good people. It's woo time. I purchased Fairies, a guide to Celtic fair folk on Audible. Awesome. I'm I'm like four-ish chapters in. And holy shit, I had two pages of notes. I mean, single spaced notes from just that. So that's good, though. That makes me happy. Yeah. So 
we're not going to get through the whole book. Obviously, I didn't get through it before I got on this call. And then I had a, a butt ton of questions for you already prior to reading that. So I think where I want to start is when people ask me who I'm interviewing this week, I say, I'm interviewing a fairy expert. I imagine you you wouldn't call yourself that, but that's what I keep calling your, you. What would you call yourself? Because you are very prolific. You have so many books written on this topic. What, what, what do you call yourself in the land of woo? Oh, in the land of woo, I like that. I mean, I'm a witch. I focus on the fairy faith, which is sort of, I don't want to say a neologism because that's not fair. It's been around for like a hundred years, but it's a it's a newer term that just describes belief in fairies. And so it's not a religious practice per se, despite having faith kind of in the name, but it's just, you know, the collection of beliefs and practices related to fairies. And fairy faith, you find it across Ireland and the UK and quite a lot of Western Europe actually is kind of where it's focused. And I kind of take that and incorporate all of that into my practice of witchcraft. That's where I am with that. And I do call myself an amateur folklorist because I haven't actually gone to school for this. I have a degree in psychology, which is not at all related <laughs> to folklore. I have taken some classes that are folklore oriented and things along those lines, but I don't actually have a degree in it because I live in the United States and school is very expensive. I'll probably never pay back the amount that I owe for my psychology degree. So I definitely am not like going to be moving on to get any more degrees, but it's a real passion of mine, the folklore. So even though I don't have like the official degree in it, it's something that I study a lot and spend a lot of time with. I have presented at universities, hence, you know, I feel comfortable calling myself an amateur folklorist as opposed to just a casual hanger yeah. on. Yeah. And you're not just like, I have this interest in fairies and now I'm at universities. I mean, you're a mega researcher. <laughs> Is that fair to say? When I'm just listening to your one book and then browsing the other titles and reading the synopsis, you research the shit out of this stuff. I do. It's in my nature. I think I'm just that sort of person that if I'm interested in something, I go like all in about it. <laughs> yeah. To give an example, it's related to book writing, but not the nonfiction. Um, I just finished writing a novel and it was my first time doing high fantasy. But I was still like, you know, what, wh how would archers in the Middle Ages carry their arrows? Like, we have to go research that before we include even the fiction. So you can imagine me with nonfiction. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. like, <laughs> we, we have to research this and. I really enjoy it, which is probably a good thing, or I'd, I would never get any sleep. Yeah. I mean, it's good you enjoy it. You told me in the pre-call, I think, but what's your sign? My astrology is such a mess. It's, it's what's it's referred to as a bundle sign. So I basically have four planets in Libra, four in Scorpio, one in Sagittarius, and one in Virgo, if I'm remembering this correctly. Oh, I remember oh. that in which school? I remember, I can't hold all of that information super well, but I do remember there being people who had those like clusters, the yep. bundle. Yeah. Yep. Like everything's just a Libra. My sun, moon, Mercury, and Pluto are all in Libra. But then I have a ton of Scorpio. So I, I get a mix of that, like very Libra, let's be fair and balanced and, you know, look at both sides. And I get that Scorpio, like 
<laughs> I don't want to insult like every Scorpio listening to this because I, I love Scorpios. They're awesome. But stubbornness, I guess yeah. we'll say. Yes. My soon to be wife is a Scorpio and I feel like they get a bad rap. They're awesome, but they, they can they be stubborn. Awesome. But I'm yes. a Capricorn, so I can't talk about stubbornness. So I'm a <laughs> pain in the ass myself. So, but I was curious because I am very much like that, where if I'm in a situation, I want it like the maximum integrity for whatever we're writing about. So I'm like, oh, well, no, we can't fake it. We do have to know how they held their arrows at that time, you know, and I don't want right. to say something that's wrong. So much like with fairies, a lot of the ideas that we have for stuff like that are just things we've gotten from like pop culture, like the whole arrows on the back, the the quiver on the back thing is not how they really did it. It was on the hip. Really? So yeah, I, I did such a deep dive into, into bows and arrows and it was <laughs> ridiculous, but, but see, that's the sort of detail. Like if you just watch movies, which is where I had my previous knowledge from, I would just assume, okay, well, that's just how they do it. And then I started researching and like, no, that's just a complete, we got that from, from modern Hollywood, basically. I wonder why Hollywood picked that. And I'm, I'm always so curious why they choose certain things for the screen, because maybe it looks cooler to whip an arrow from behind your back than it does to sort of casually pull it out of your thigh or whatever. But, yep. but I feel like convenience wise, it's probably an easier movement, a quicker movement to get it from your, your leg. Right. Yep. yep. And that's what all the sources were saying that, I mean, there were instances where they did have the back quiver. Like that's not Hollywood didn't invent it. It just wasn't very common, but the hip quiver was the thing most people used for that reason. It's, it's easier faster. You can kind of look down and see what you're reaching for. You're not like blindly, you know, reaching yeah. over your back <laughs> yeah. and you can see how many arrows you have left. I mean, there's just so many aspects of it. Apparently it's also more comfortable. Yeah. So if you're like spending the whole day marching with an army, easier to have it on your hip. So it says nothing totally. to do with fairies. We've gone like off. <laughs> yeah. But, category, but, but you bring up something interesting though, which is that the, that Hollywood chose a different way to interpret the bow, the quiver of the arrows and how you even shoot the, the damn thing. But that's what we did with fairies too. And you talk about that in the beginning of the book that Disney is like, fairies are so cute and tiny and precious. That's not the case though, right? No. no. <laughs> and interestingly, probably that's an excellent comparison that you just made because that's probably exactly why it happened is the same reason Hollywood makes a lot of choices is, is it going to look good for an audience? The <laughs> audience might not want to see the hip quiver because it's not as sexy. I don't know. <laughs> and the same kind of thing with fairies, you know, there definitely was a move in the Victorian era, which is like the late 19th century, early 20th century to kind of make fairies more something for children. And I think Disney definitely took that aspect of it as well, but sort of the way they presented it and sort of solidified this image and in, in popular imagination of fairies as these tiny sort of cute, almost childlike little winged figures and yeah, when we look at the actual folklore, first of all, the word fairy is actually more of a general term that's applied to kind of a wide range of different things. So, you know, you have some things that are very small, you have things that are giant, you have things that are not even humanoid, like there's fairy cats and fairy dogs and fairy horses. 
And then you have a lot of fairies that look really quite a bit like humans. I mean, they're clearly not when you see them discussed in stories and things like there's something about them that you as a human, if you saw them, would kind of know right away that they weren't fellow humans, as it were. You know, the whole pointed ears thing is modern. Wings is modern. All of that kind of stuff is things that have come in mostly in the last hundred or so years. And when we talk about fairies, you, you could be talking about a lot of different, different things. Yeah. And that, that's something that I've been learning over the past couple of years is that how broad that term is. And I have to say real quick though, side note, do you know the artist, the musician Aurora? Vaguely. Yes. I swear she's a fairy. I really have a theory that she is legit fairy. I mean, and again, here we go. I'm thinking of like the fairy that's kind of the like da 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 wispy and fun and feeling sort of otherworldly. It seems like there's probably something like that because the definition is so broad. There there broad. probably was that a version of that, but was that yep. the only version? Absolutely not. Nope. And how many? I mean, it's probably impossible to say. We don't really know how many there could be, right? I mean, even right. and then and then when does folklore end and quote unquote reality begin? And 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 they crisscross all the time, right? So, what are your thoughts on that? I think reality is really overrated. You know, people are... <laughs> That's the quotes. <laughs> yeah, air quotes reality. What's that quote from MythBusters? Adam Savage. I reject your reality and substitute my own. There we go. There we go. <laughs> reality is is what we perceive it to be. I mean, I think that, you know, we're talking about fairies. There's so many layers to them and there's so many aspects of it, of the discussion that get really complicated. For example, there's a folklore that we can find in Scandinavian countries that also talk about water horses, which is a type of fairy horse. And then we have the same or very similar sort of thing in Scotland and Ireland's water horses. Is that actually the same? Like, are they the exact same sort of thing, but we have different names for them in different languages? Are they different types of fairies that just both happen to be horses? You know, I think a lot of that is really open to personal interpretation. Mm -hmm. You'll have people who say, oh no, there's, there's fairy horses and you can find them in all these different places. And then you'll have people that'll say, no, like, the, the knock, which is the Scandinavian one, is a separate kind of thing. And the Ishuski, um, which is the Scottish one, is a separate kind of thing. They just are both horses, but they're, they're not the same type of being. So yeah, it gets really complicated with that and trying to decide sometimes like what is a fairy, like what qualifies as a fairy and what doesn't. People have asked me a lot about the black-eyed children, which is sort of this new, I don't know if we call it cryptid or urban legend or what we <laughs> maybe both. It. it depends who you're talking to. <laughs> right. Right. Little, little bit of category A, a little bit of category B maybe. But the interesting thing with them to me is that they, they fit a lot of the things that we would look for, for fairies. And again, being that very wide category, but you know, this idea that they appear sort of out of nowhere that they tend to dress in a way that's a little archaic or unusual, which is a thing we see with fairies, that they often act in a way 
that kind of implies or seems like they know more than they should. I've heard people talking about encounters where the black eyed children will say things that they yeah. shouldn't know, knocking on the door to be let in. Um, that isn't as common across fairy lore, but it is something we find with certain beings. Like they can't come in unless they're invited or unless the human does something, messes something up, basically. <laughs> That kind yeah. of opens it up for them. And I could go keep going on. I don't want to talk about black-eyed children for two hours, but... We could, though. <laughs> we could. We definitely could. Um, but it's just an interesting example of something that if someone was saying, okay, I found this story from like 1765 Scotland, and it's, you know, these two children appear with dark eyes and wearing these strange clothes and they go up to a door and they knock and want to come in and you know whatever just fill in the rest of the the black eyed children's story i think most people hearing that if they were put in the context of 18th century scotland would be like oh well that that sounds like fairies maybe ghosts but probably fairies fairies and ghosts are also a big messy blurry thing sometimes but when we put it in like modern urban terms people immediately sort of try to find a different place. That's where we get the cryptid or the urban legend or like what's really going on here. But it's it's got so many of sort of the classic things that we would see in the older fairy lore, the older fairy stories, which fascinates me. I'm like, you know. Yeah, me too. And I'm feeling like the more I go down the paranormal and supernatural rabbit holes of the woo, that I keep coming to this conclusion that everything is just fae. Everything is fairies. And let's side note real quick, fae versus fairies versus all the other names for these beings. Can you talk about that for a sure. sec? Sure. Etymology, my favorite thing in the world, which <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. I really, I can... Linguistics and etymology are something I have way too much affection for. It's unhealthy. So... <laughs> I know there's a lot of modern debate about this, but what we actually find when we dig into the history of it is the word fae is French. We see it in the French in the 12th century. It's actually very similar. The modern word fairy in French is fee. I'm sure I mispronounced that because my French is atrocious. It's F-E-E and one of the E's has an accent mark over it. And it comes from the older French, which is fae. Fae got imported to English around the 13th century, because and I thought this was particularly fascinating. I had attended a lecture by Ronald Hutton talking about traditional fairies, and he was the one who mentioned this, that there's always been this belief, very widespread belief that you don't want to call them fairies or you don't want to call them by whatever it is you call them. You want to use a euphemism. So the native term in England in the 13th century would have been elf, alpha. And they think, or Hutton at least thinks that the term fairy got brought in so that you could call them that and not call them elf or alpha, which is super fascinating to me. And fairy is just the English version of fae. Fae kind of meant like enchanting or supernatural or otherworldly. The world of, of fairy is what it became in English. And it got brought into English with that meaning fairy, like the land of fairy or something that's from the land of fairy. And then we've sort of continued to use it in English. And after long enough in English, then we start to see the idea again, like you shouldn't call them that. You should call them like the good folk or the good neighbors, the shining ones, 
like something else because um, calling them fairies will get their attention basically. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily want to do that, especially for bad mouthing them. You really don't want to do that. <laughs> and we also kind of see, we'll see people talking about this idea that there's a particular spelling. Uh, it's important to remember though, that spelling wasn't standardized until fairly recently. So, you know, like 150, 200 years ago, everyone just kind of spelled stuff the way that it made sense. And it was just a spelling free for all. Um, <laughs> which I'm dyslexic and I like that idea. I think we should go back to that. Spelling. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so there's actually, I believe it's 94 different historic ways to spell the word fairy. And if some of them are completely ridiculous. I'm trying to think. My favorite one is F-F-E-Y. R-E-Y. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Just like. 94. Yeah. Yeah. It really, any combination of letters you can think of, including P-H, double F's, every vowel under the sun (laughs) gets thrown in there. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And then, you know, about a hundred years ago, it kind of got standardized. And the two main ones we still see are the the fairy, the F-A-I-R-Y. And then the F-A-E-R-Y or sometimes I-E, like people fancy it up a little bit, but it's it's all historically, at least it all refers to the same thing. Some people today kind of differentiate it for themselves or certain groups will say like, you know, this one means one thing and this one means another, but historically they all kind of mean the same thing. If you read the older material, you just have to get used to, they're going to be calling them all kinds of interesting things. <laughs> And that concept of calling them something like the good people or the shining ones or something like that, I think, I believe I remember from your book that it was, it was also wanting to call them something nice so that they, if they did show up, they would maybe be motivated to be more nice to you because generally, even though Disney has taught us that they're all like nice and fun loving they can be kind of as a whole kind of trickstery, I would say. Right. I mean, or I mean, I know there's so many categories, but sort of generally, would you say that? Yeah. Um, I think one of the few things we can say kind of about everything that gets called a fairy is they definitely have that sort of trickster mischievous kind of thing. Some of them are definitely outright dangerous and some of them are definitely more friendly and helpful, but all of them can be kind of tricksy. You know, even the sort of helpful ones can occasionally play pranks. <laughs> I roll my eyes as I say it because it's annoying. But, and of course, the dangerous ones is going to be more dangerous kind of pranks. Like the Will of the Wisp, I'll give an example. A lot of people, when they think of it in modern terms, I think they kind of water it down a little bit and imagine, like, okay, it'll mislead you. It'll get you lost, maybe, you know, light in the woods, sort of a thing. Mm hmm. In in the older folklore and a lot of the traditional folklore that has, you know, things that we would call Will of the Wisps in English, they would usually kill you. They would kind of lead you off a cliff or like into a swamp where you drown, like stuff like that. They were not pleasant. <laughs> like you did not want to run into them. It wasn't just that you would get lost in the woods for a while. Like they would, they would lead you into really dangerous situations because they thought that was funny, I guess. <laughs> It's entertainment for them. I don't know. (laughs) But that's sort of an example where, you know, it's 
it's kind of playing a joke in a way, at least from, from the Will-O-The-Wisp point of view, but it's obviously dangerous for the human. Something that comes up a lot with the Fae, which that's what I call them, but I think it's just because I was told somewhere not to call them fairies. But now that I've heard why, that that's been like multiple renditions and originally it was Elf and Elfa, kind of doesn't matter, right? I definitely think that when we when we dig into the language, we start to realize that there's not a lot of firm boundaries. Like the older material, you'll see them called elf and fairy, even elf, fairy, and goblin kind of all together interchangeably. So yeah, you know, there there definitely isn't like a firm line. Going we don't on there. know what we're supposed to call them, really. Just do what you will. <laughs> Just don't offend them. Just be yeah. nice. Don't say yeah. it in an abrasive way. What I was going to say is the the one topic that comes up automatically when I talk about the Fae is dimensions or where they come from. Where do they live? That kind of, you know, where do you think, based off of your research, they're sort of hanging out? Because um, it does feel like, from what I've heard and just the beginning of your book, they kind of pop in and out of our what we perceive as our world and our reality. But again, that's in quotes because that's that's complicated in itself. But yep. what do that's, you yeah, think about that's that? True. Yeah. In modern terms, particularly for people that are sort of in like one particular area of the woo community, we would say, people tend to label them like interdimensional beings or extra dimensional beings, which sort of has that inherent implication that they're attached to this reality again air quotes reality that they have some sort of intrinsic connection to our world but they're not really from here and they have that ability like you just said to sort of go back and forth in the older material and the more traditional um, folk beliefs it's the same idea it's just different language is used this idea that they come from this world called fairy or the other world and that that is sort of their native place, that they're from this other realm that is very closely layered with ours and that they have this ability to go back and forth, that they can come into our world or leave our world as they choose to, but that humans don't necessarily have the same ability. And I say necessarily because then we really do dive into like the deep end of the woo pool and there's a lot of sort of complicated things that are going on over there too. But for the most part, like when humans end up in the world of fairy, it's usually either because they get lost and wander in unintentionally or they're brought there by a member of fairy, by one of the fairies. Usually not a good thing for the human in that second case, but... Yeah. Well, and that leads me to time and what happens with time. It seems like fairies can just bop around from dimension to dimension, do whatever the fuck they want. And then if humans happen to stumble into the land of fairy and then they come back, there's usually a massive, sometimes massive time discrepancy. Like it's like years have gone by and it's just been a few minutes in one land or the other, right? Yeah. And this, this I think ties into that other world, extra dimensional, interdimensional, whatever language you prefer to use for this, but that other reality that they exist in, they have control over the travel back and forth when they do it. And they seem to understand how that flow of time works 
I'm not gonna be able to quote this exactly, but Catherine Briggs in one of her books talks about it like a boat and a dock where the boat is tied to the dock, but it also kind of moves back and forth closer to it, further from it. And if you picture like the world of fairy is the boat and the human world is the dock, that's sort of what's going on. And the fairies seem to understand that that transition between further away or closer together, what's going on with that. Humans do not. Humans don't seem to be able to control that or influence it. We're just sort of at the mercy of it. So what we see in a lot of the older stories is this idea of, you know, someone who runs across a group of fairies that's dancing at night and is invited to join them and joins them and has a wonderful time, dances all night with the fairies, yay. But then in the morning, they go to leave and actually a decade has passed or, you know, 50 years has passed or a hundred years has passed. And suddenly like all the people that they knew are gone or much older and everything has changed. And usually the person kind of can't survive that. They don't tend to live very long afterwards. Um, And we see this even like in mythology, there's accounts where, you know, someone is taken into the land of fairy, thinks that three years have gone by, wants to go back and visit his friends. And, you know, his fairy wife is kind of like, that's not really a good idea. You probably shouldn't do that. He insists. So, you know, she lends him a horse and just says, just don't touch the ground and you'll be okay. And he goes back and come to find out 300 years has passed and everything has changed and it's all very different. And of course he ends up falling from the horse. And as soon as he touches the ground, all those 300 years kind of catch up to him and he's immediately like very, very old. That's the story of uh, Neve and Oshin, by the way, in Irish mythology. But stuff like that, you know, I, I give like examples from mythology and folklore. We actually have modern anecdotal accounts of that too. There's a book called Strange Terrain, which is specifically about fairy lore in um, Newfoundland. And there's one account in there in particular of a man who was working with, I believe it was a logging company. And they took a break for lunch and he decided he was going to go off kind of by himself, you know, whatever, didn't want to eat with his buddies. I don't know. And so he goes off, the half hour lunch goes by, he doesn't come back. So all the rest of the, the logging crew go out looking for him and they're, they're looking for him and they can't find him. You know, obviously it becomes a whole big thing, but they, they can't find him. So eventually, you know, they stop looking and they go back to work and either three days or a week goes by and, you know, the, the guys are out there working as they had been. And the missing guy just walks out of the woods. And they're all like, where have you been? <laughs> like, you've been gone for a week. And he's like, no, I haven't. Like, why are you? You're, he thinks they're all playing a joke on him, basically. He's like, I just went and had my lunch. I ran into some people in the woods and I sat down and ended up eating my lunch with them. But I've only been gone half an hour. Why are you messing with me? He really believed he'd only been gone for half an hour. This was in the 1980s, if I remember correctly. And it had actually like they'd reported it missing with the police. It was a whole thing. So things like this do still happen. You know, I realize when we talk about this subject in particular, a lot of times people can kind of think of it as something historic or something in the past or like, you know, we have stories from a long time ago, which we do and sort of not think of it as something that still happens, but we do, we have anecdotal accounts even up through the 21st century. Yeah. And I think that's really, I mean, 
That's really interesting because I want to talk to those people and it's so soon that it matches up to, for you. I'm sure it's really fascinating because you can actually compare to the research that you've already done with the, the older material. There's so many questions I have, but one is there's just so many people on the planet right now and there's so much noise everywhere that this could be happening all the time and we just never hear about it. I mean, yeah. there's huge protests that happen because I've been an activist for most of my adult life that ne we never see on the news. We never see anywhere. And yep. so, I mean, imagine like a little fairy encounter that happens in a tiny little town in the middle of bumfuck who, who cares. And we're not going to hear about that. And even if it did happen, the people that they tell might not believe them and might say, oh, shut up. You're making shit up. So. Those are the stories that I'm most interested in. You, you have to dig and dig to find them, though, because there's so many reasons why someone wouldn't want to talk about that, too. It's definitely more challenging, I think, because of what happened during the Victorian era. And this was specifically like upper and middle class people in England and the United States that mostly were putting this out. But it's had a wide impact. This idea that fairies are for children. And I think what that's really meant for us now in the 21st century is that people who say they believe in fairies or people who talk about fairy encounters because everyone immediately sort of associates that with like children and childlike things. It becomes either you're joking or you think that you're still 12 years old, you know, you need to grow up, you're not being mm -hmm. very mature, things like that. Whereas if you go to places that still have a more active belief system with this, even though there's layers of that as well. But I think people are much more willing to be like, you know, okay, well, I, I do think that this did happen because they, they kind of believe that it's possible. Usually the way I compare this for people in the United States, because I think sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp the dynamics going on with this is it's kind of like with ghosts. In the US, if you ask most people, do you believe in ghosts? A lot of people are going to say no. But even people who are skeptical, if someone tells them I had a ghost encounter or I had this happen, you know, or don't go to that place, it's really haunted. Even people who will be very strongly like, I don't believe in that. They do kind of, because it's a fairly widespread belief here that ghosts, you know, exist and are real in some way. So they're not going to maybe go to that house <laughs> that everyone says is haunted or, you know, when their friend is like, oh, I had this experience happen and, you know, I think it was a ghost, they're going to listen to it and they might be like, well, I don't know. I don't really believe in ghosts, but the first time there's a weird noise, they're going to run. <laughs> and it's that same sort of thing with fairies in a lot of places. Iceland is a good example. If you ask people over there, most people will say, no, they don't believe in the the alpha or the hold of folk, um, the, the elves and the hidden folk, but they really still have a lot of respect for it. They're still not going to do certain things that culturally you believe you shouldn't do. It'll offend them. You'll still see stories of construction being stopped or moved because it was thought to offend the elves or there, there were things that were happening because the elves were upset about something. So, I mean, it's still a very deeply ingrained belief. Mm -hmm. Even if people are like, well, no, I don't, I don't believe in that. Yeah. But and it's a good 
good way to compare it to the ghosts because, you know, I encounter that all the time where people are like, oh, no, I don't believe in that. And then you take them out one time and they have a weird experience and they're like the first ones running out the door. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. So that's a cool way to to compare to countries like Ireland. Like my friend is from Ireland and she said there's certain traditions that they just kind of do and, and it's for the Fae or whatever they are called there, I guess. Is it the, what would they be called in Ireland? Um, I mean, there's, a, there's several names in Ireland. She is one of the more common ones. Is she, then is she literally the fairy hills, like the place that they, they're thought to live, but kind of gets shorthanded. Shiog would be the, the Irish word for fairy. So, Again, linguistics, I can get totally off onto that. If yes. Like well, the she, so I've heard that before for sure. And it's interesting that it's sort of like in, interchangeable with the name of the beings and the name of the place. It seems like that happens a lot. And that has been, I've heard that be a place where, what is it also called? Tir, Tirnanog. Tirnanog. That's, yeah, that's one of the um, islands in the other world. Tirnanog, it means land of the young. So that would be a place where, well, all of these places we're, we're guessing because they're potentially were ultra terrestrials or what, whatever we're calling them, they're able to pass back and forth and we're not able to. So if we go over there, any of these places, there's going to be some issue with time. Is that yes. like across the board? There's almost always a time issue with yes. humans visiting. All the stories I've read, yes. Although it's impossible to predict how that time thing is going to work, which is why I mentioned with that analogy <laughs> with the, the boat and the dock. Yeah. For example, there's one story, this is from England, of a gentleman who was out in the field and he is taken into the land of ferry. From his perspective, he lives there for a year and he's brought to this ferry city and told, you know, you can basically like wake yourself at home. You can live here. Just one thing you can't do. There's always one thing you can't do. So one thing you can't do is there's this fountain in the middle of the city and you can't touch the water in it. Whatever reason, there's, there's always some taboo with the humans that things that they can't do. And of course he lives there for a year and everything's going really well. And then for whatever reason, he decides he just kind of has to go see that fountain and ends up touching the water. And he immediately is back in the field where he had started. And of course he thinks it's a year later and he goes running to tell his, his friends and family that he's back. And they're all like, you've been gone for like five minutes. Like you've just left. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, so sometimes we do have stories where it goes the other way and the person spends a long time in the world of fairy and then comes back and it's actually only been a short amount of time here. So there's one more reason why you would not want to tell someone like if you come back and you're like, hey, guess what? I've been gone a year. They're going to be like, wow, you're a bad shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's been five minutes. Yeah. yeah, layers of bad shit, right? Like not only did you just say you saw a bunch of beings that we don't know about, but also you think that you've been gone for a really long ass time. So, yeah. you know, they're probably already like diagnosing you and trying to get you into some kind of facility. I imagine. Interesting because fairies across kind of the record and even in the modern times have a very strong association with madness. This idea that they can make humans mad, they can make humans crazy as a punishment or if they just want to. But also, yeah, that people who see them or associate with them are thought to not be operating in consensual reality, if you will. <laughs> There's a term... 
in Ireland, and I, I don't know if it's found elsewhere. I know for sure in Ireland, though, away with the fairies, they call it. And people will use it sometimes for someone who's like flighty or can't focus or daydreams a lot. But it, it literally is referencing someone being away, taken, gone with the fairies, touched is another term, fairy touched, which is the same idea. It's that you're you're not entirely sane because you have this <laughs> this strong connection with them. I just, all of these thoughts are rolling around my mind. And one of them is I used to have this theory that many missing children or missing people were in other dimensions, that they just got sucked up into other dimensions. Not to negate the fact that many of them are taken by horrible humans who do horrible things to them. But I still do believe that people are taken or maybe they're not taken. Maybe they just stumble into something. Have you ever thought about that in the in the case of like a missing person? Yep. There's there's been some interesting discussion. I've talked about this with one of my my good friends in particular about some of the missing 411 cases particularly the ones with children and not just the ones where the child disappears and they're never seen again. But, you know, there's been some stories where a child disappears and then they're found again, but they're like 10 or 12 miles away, but there's no sign that they got there themselves. But there's, there's also like, they're not harmed in any way. They were gone for a period of time where they should be like, you know, they should have signs of exposure or something else going on and they seem pretty much okay. And they can't describe what happened while they were gone. There's been accounts I've seen, for example, of like a child who wandered off from a backyard and was missing for like two or three days and everyone is searching for them and cold enough to snow at night. So, you know, people are assuming the worst by day three. And then they find the kid who's like three or four and he's perfectly fine. But he has this story about how a bear kept him company and kept him warm and, you know, things like that. When I hear them, I immediately think fairies mm-hmm. because that's just outside of the the natural order of things, if you yeah. will. Well, that's cool that I have that story now that I can use to tell people when they're like, no, that doesn't happen. I can just say, well, <laughs> it actually I mean, it, might. It might. I, I think you're right. Obviously, there's a percentage of them. It's, it's humans being bad humans and some of them are probably people who don't want to be found and whatever else goes on. But I definitely do think that stuff like we see in the older folklore with, with humans being taken. And interestingly, there's some folklore about children who get lost in the woods being helped by fairies and kept safe and like brought back to civilization. So that's all kind of within the realm of material that we can find out there. And why would it stop is my yeah. big question. I kind of have this idea about subtle energy. And I think in my experience with subtle energy, it's for meditation, let's say, like I've done these really long meditation courses where at the beginning of the meditation course, you know, you have more gross sensations on your body. You're feeling the more gross sensations. And then as the week goes on, the 90th or the, you know, 95th hour of meditation, you start to feel these really subtle sensations all over your body and your senses all become so subtle. And I think kids have more subtle vibrations as well. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. My idea is maybe that the Fae are nicer to kids because they're more that like subtle vibration, what seems to be as far as like my experience with gurus and stuff 
that you are able to pass through other dimensions, the more subtle your vibrations are. That's kind of like the conclusion that I've come to just from the time that I've spent with gurus who've been in deep, deep samadhi for decades. I mean, I think, again, keeping in mind that fairy is such a broad term, because we definitely do have some that are, are not safe around children at all. But there definitely seem to be those who are drawn to that subtle energy that children have. It's pretty well known, actually, with people in general who know about these beings or connected to them in any way that they tend to be really drawn to children. Children are the most likely to see them. Children are the most likely to have more positive encounters. You know, I think part of that is that children don't try to rationalize away things. But when something happens as an adult, because we have it so ingrained that like, Certain things are possible and certain things are not. So if you have an experience that kind of butts up against your internalized idea of what is possible in this reality, you will try to convince yourself that that didn't happen or you know, try to explain it in a way where you feel like it was normal and it fits into the rules of this reality. Children aren't like that. If a child feels like a talking bear came up to them when they were lost in the woods and kept them warm at night, <laughs> they're going to repeat that story and they're not going to question that that's not something bears do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Any part of that is not something bears do. <laughs> so I think part of why children are more open to these things is definitely that they, they're operating at that higher level where they're, they're more in tune with spiritual things Mm -hmm. because that being in tune hasn't been like knocked out of them yet. And I think that having that sort of higher vibration, if you will, is also what tends to draw those experiences to them. It's not a catch-22 that's the opposite of that. It's like both of those factors are kind of affecting each other. Right. Even when you're doing like ghost hunts or things like that, the psychic or the medium, the person who's actively calibrating or cultivating their psychic gifts generally has the most experiences. Not always. Sometimes it's a wild card and it's just somebody who happens to have maybe some like latent gifts and they're poked more. But back to the the shamans and the, the gurus, I feel like shamans and gurus might be the only ones that I have spoken with who could possibly do the interdimensional travel without losing the time. Do you think that's possible? Because it's from the Ecuadorian shamans that I worked with, they definitely went into these states where they were, as they were saying, traveling among dimensions. Do you think that's still the Fae and it's just that their terminology in their culture? Uh, see, the million dollar question. And this, I will say, is a little bit contentious. Like there, people can have some very strong opinions about this. I personally think that what we would call fairies in English are a universal or at least global human phenomena. I think wherever you find human cultures, you find these experiences with these beings that fit this broad category, these, these definitions. I think that some of those cultures are fine with using the word fairy and will use the word fairy as a translation for whatever their native term is. Others are not. So I tend to use the term fairy-like just to make it clear that these are similar, but to be respectful if it's a culture that doesn't like 
using the English language term, but I have yet to find a single culture that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that doesn't have experiences with these beings that can be physical or can be non-physical and can go back and forth, which is a fairy thing that can be in the human world, but can also move out of the human world kind of at their own will that can influence humans in specific ways, particularly around health and sickness and luck is another big one. There's these sort of criteria that you can look at and everywhere you look, it just seems to be a a human thing that, that you have these beings. And I have theories, personal theories as to why that is, but you know, I would probably say that these beings live in a sort of symbiotic state with humans and they need us for various things. We need them for various things, whether we know it or not. So they are just something that always exists around humanity. Do I think it's possible for an adept enough spiritual practitioner of any flavor to control that time thing. I think it's possible. I think it would definitely require a lot of skill. I know someone who is a Buddhist who would basically be, uh, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent, I'm not a Buddhist by the way, and I do not know Buddhist terms, but he's been very devoutly studying it for a very long time and is extremely adept with it, particularly with the more esoteric kind of magical side of Buddhism. He speaks Tibetan. He speaks, well, I don't know if he speaks Sanskrit, he can read and write it. So he's very good with like the the original languages and has trained with a lot of this. And I think he probably, out of all the people I know, would be the only one offhand I could think of that if anyone was going to like go into fairy and come back when they intended to, he would be at the top of my list. So if that answers the question. Yes, I think it's possible, but I think it requires a lot of of training and effort. Yeah, makes sense. I, I didn't imagine that it would be something that I would do in this lifetime, but it, it, it is interesting to to think about that the idea that like at some point, maybe we could evolve many, many, many years from now to be able to pass through different dimensions more easily, or maybe just a, a fraction of the population that the... I'll just say that (laughs) would be able to evolve to that level, I guess. Yeah. I think humanity has always had certain people that are just, I don't know if we'd say hardwired or inclined or there's just certain people are born with that affinity for spirits and for spirit beings. And, you know, whether you want to be or not, I have certainly met people who have that affinity and do not want to do it. Yeah. And, you know, if you have the affinity, sometimes you don't have the option. Right. You have to kind of do it. So that's why I was trying to choose my words carefully because I, I think there are people who do it by choice that can be very skilled at it. And I'm not trying to imply differently, but I think, again, globally speaking, every culture always has those specialists mm-hmm. who seem to be people that are just, well, you know, in a lot of cultures, it's they have that whole, what do they call it? Spirit sickness where yeah. someone gets really sick or, or almost dies. And then when they recover, they they have this ability or affinity or calling, whatever you want to call it, for that sort of work. So that brings me to the question, 
do you think it's possible for fairies and humans to, can there be hybrids? Let me say, (laughs) do you think that's happened? Do you think that there's fairy blood that's like dripped into our DNA at any point? If we look just at the folklore, the answer would be an unequivocally yes. We have a ridiculous amount of folklore relating to this topic. And uh, for the record, this is also the question I am asked the most often across the board. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very popular question. No, we have a lot of references and references also to like specific types of fairies in particular that are known to sort of have an interest in humanity in that sense. What we mostly see is humans being taken into the world of fairy and then having children and the idea that like the fairies themselves don't necessarily reproduce very often or particularly well. So they'll kind of bring humans in to help with that. Try to think of like the nicest, (laughs) delicate ways to say these things. (laughs) But we do have stories as well of like, there's a famous family in medieval Wales who were physicians And they supposedly were descended from a lake maiden, which is a type of fairy. And that was where they had, they said they got their skill with medicine and their knowledge with medicine from. And the same thing, like you see stories with selkies, selkies, they look like seals in the water and they can come out of the water and take off their seal skin. And then they look human. And there's a lot of stories about selkies who a fisherman finds the seal skin and takes it. And then selkie marries him and has children with him and then eventually finds the seal skin or usually one of the children finds it. And then the Selkie returns to the sea, but the children are left on land in most of the stories. Sometimes she does take them with her. Most of the times the children are left and then those children go on and grow up and live, you know, human lives, but they're, they would be half fairy. So I definitely think we see things like that in the folklore happening. But what do you think? I think there's so much evidence for it that it would be really hard to argue that there wasn't something going on. I mean, it's kind of that argument you would have, though, that it's something that happens often enough and we see it enough that everyone would theoretically have some degree of this today Mm. just because the stories go back so far. The oldest story in Ireland dates to, I believe, the fifth century. And that's in writing. I mean, obviously the oral traditions. Yeah. Things go back further than that. We just don't have things in writing until later. And I should just say to be clear, because I know someone is going to listen to this and then comment on it. The oldest account in writing dates to like the eighth or ninth century, but the language used scholars think that it was from a story from the fifth or sixth century to be clear before people start commenting that I don't know what I'm talking about because there's nothing that survived from the fifth century. This lady. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I can, as soon as I said it, I'm like, I can see the comments coming in now. But we have, you know, 1500 years ago, people were telling this story about this young man who was basically, you know, wooed away, we'll say, by this woman, a fairy, and left to go live in the other world with him. So that's a long time for this stuff to have been going on. <laughs> And I hear this a lot with aliens too. So extraterrestrials. So the ultra terrestrials are what we're talking about, that they're sort of tied to here, but they're not really here, kind of interdimensional. And then the extraterrestrials are supposed to be out there in the universe, which even those two terms are debatable, I think, but because what's out there is in here and vice versa. But 
I digress. So I hear that about aliens not being able to have children very easily. And so then using human DNA to sort of just get to where they need to get without really caring about what they do to human (laughs) subjects. And that seems to go back for a ways as well. On that, do you think that the traditional alien, let's say like what what we're most familiar with globally, I'd say is like a gray. Do you think that that is actually a fairy in, in the category, the overwhelming category of fairy? There's two diverse ways to approach this. People who are more in like the ufologist communities will tend to argue that fairies are historic UFOs and aliens, that that was how people without an understanding of, you know, technology and aliens would describe aliens, that they, they call them fairies. People who are really into fairy folklore take the opposite view and will tend to argue that you know, modern alien abductions and things like that are just a more sci-fi way of explaining fairies for people who are sort of out of that traditional fairy culture that don't have any other context for it. I think that there's definitely more than us out there in the universe. So I don't discount that aliens could be there. I'm not 100% sure why they'd want to come here because most of the people who live here don't seem to want to be here. So (laughs) we kind of suck too. (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, humans, not the best example of sentient species, but, (laughs) but I, I definitely think that when we look at at least some alien encounters, it could definitely be fairies in a different context. And when we look just in general at fairy encounters and, and alien encounters, there's so many similarities. Joshua Cutchin has several books about this just to get into exactly how similar these can be. Thieves in the Night is one and then Trojan Feast is another that I would recommend for people who are really interested in fairies and aliens and crossovers. But, you know, the time difference is something. We talked about that with fairies. That's also, of course, a big thing with alien abductions, people losing time or people having time slips or, you know, things like that. Definitely the idea of forced reproduction, I guess we would say. <laughs> try to phrase so this. PC. <laughs> yeah. And that's something we see, of course, with fairies and with aliens. We were just talking about that. Things like lights, flashing lights, uh, lights in the woods. There's a really famous alien encounter in England. And of course, I'm not going to remember the name of the, the base that it happened on. It was a military base. But it was, if you take out the the more blatant alien aspects of it that people described after the fact, you know, lights in the woods, people going to follow the lights in the woods, having all sorts of strange things happening. I think there's also a time issue that happened with that one. And a lot of that is very classic fairy kind of encounter stuff. Even the physical descriptions, again, keeping in mind that fairy is such a broad category, but we do see fairies that are described sort of similar to the way the gray aliens are, are described about that height kind of humanoid, but not human looking, that sort of thing. Right. Joshua Cutchin in his book, Trojan Feast, focuses a lot on food, alien encounters that involve food where people were either force fed or offered food. And that's something we see a lot in fairy lore. The idea you shouldn't eat fairy food because it'll trap you 
in the land of fairy, but it's just, there's so many layers that kind of interconnect and have that similarity. I think that it's hard to know definitively. This is my Libra coming out, by the way, all of my, <laughs> my four planets in Libra. I think there's probably truth in all of it. I think we, we probably do have things going on with aliens and UFOs. I have friends that I trust absolutely who have seen UFOs and I believe them. I have never seen one myself, but I, I trust that these people have. So I, I know that things like that are out there. And then, of course, we have fairy material, which goes back so far. And could some of that older fairy material be people trying to contextualize alien encounters that don't have the language for it? Sure, possibly. Could some of the modern alien encounters be people encountering fairies and not having the context for that and think it's aliens? Sure. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah, we're going to have that <laughs> a lot, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What about That's... vampires? And the reason I bring this up is not just because of True Blood, but <laughs> because I have been working with and chatting with some vampires, some modern vampires recently. Sure. And I'm learning so much about what it means to be an ethical vampire in the modern world and how to ethically feed and things like that. And it's oh, so fascinating. I could die. And I'm curious because in, in shows like True Blood, Vampires and fairies are supposed to be these opposite sort of creatures that are so attracted to each other, but then also repel and this this weird kind of dance that they do. Do you think that vampires are actually just sort of another species of fairies? I would have to say again, a little of column A, a little of column B. That's what I thought. We do have beings that we are... I, I was going to say we know are fairies, but I guess that would kind of leave that an open question, though. We do have beings that are considered to be fairies and described as fairies in the folklore and in the, the recorded material that if you didn't know it was a fairy and you heard the story, you would consider it a vampire. The Scottish Shabovenshi, a fairy woman who appears and they usually appear to in a group to men in a group that are kind of in the woods, usually hunting. And sort of a, you know, hey, are you looking for a good time? Let's go, you know, we'll dance, make some music and hang out, whatever, you know, as you do in the woods, I guess, when you're hunting in Scotland. But what usually happens in the stories that we have of this is, you know, one of the men will sing or play an instrument and the others will dance. And he eventually will notice, despite the, the woman next to him trying to like get his attention, that his friends have gotten like very quiet or acting very strange and yeah, come to find out their dance partners have drained them of blood. So then the man who'd been singing or playing the music, of course, runs away <laughs> as you do. Yes. <laughs> in those circumstances. Um, Smart. Yeah. And is usually then chased and often will take refuge like among the horses because the iron, these are vampires, but they are also fairies. So they won't get around iron because that's a, a ward against fairies. And he survives till the morning and then goes and gets people from the town and they go up and find the bodies of the other three with, you know, drained of blood. Sometimes their hearts are ripped out too, just for, you know, festiveness, but, <laughs> but they're, they're definitely considered kind of in that, that range of vampiric beings. There's 
of being in the Isle of Man, and I don't speak Manx, so again, I apologize. I'm going to mispronounce this, but they're called uh, Lana and She. And it's the same sort of thing. They're thought to inspire someone, but they also feed on them. So the person kind of wastes away, which is something we see in some of the, the more classic European vampire stories. I shouldn't even say European. We have a vampire story in Rhode Island that's basically that. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. Don't get me started on Rhode Island vampire lore. It's fascinating. It's one of the oldest ones that happened in the colonies when it was still an English colony. And this girl had died and they thought probably consumption because everyone died of consumption Mm -hmm. back in the day. And they buried her and then her siblings one by one started getting sick. And, you know, people in the family were just dropping like flies. And finally, one of them started talking about how they were having dreams of this, the first sister who had died coming to them at night. And so it was decided that she must be a vampire and the, the rest of the people that were left in the family and some other people from the town dug her up and it had been six months and her body was perfectly preserved from the way, the way the story describes it. She looked like she had just been buried, which clearly was not a happy thing for these people. They they were not thrilled to see this. So they, they gave her the traditional vampire treatment and then it stopped and nobody else died. So make of that what you will. Yeah. But I want to say, I want to say the name was Brown. The family name was Brown, but that was in Rhode Island. Hmm. Have you had an experience that might be connected to the Fae? Or maybe now you're thinking, yeah, that could be it because it felt especially elemental or because something was stolen from you or because time got warped in some way? If so, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. I know that my regular listeners know my email, but I'm just emphasizing here again, this topic has been coming up repeatedly for me and for so many people in my general vicinity. So I'm really trying to pay attention to synchronicities and overlap in experiences. And remember, when you reach out to me on email or in any way, really, you can always remain anonymous when you share your experiences, just in case it feels a little hinky. If you're looking for a Fairy 101 course, essentially, I highly recommend you listen to Morgan's book, Fairies, A Guide to the Celtic Fair Folk, on Audible. So the audiobook just came out in October of 2021, and it's so good. It's easy to listen to while you're in the car, except if you're like me, you have to like <laughs> pull over on the side of the road and take a bunch of notes before you can move on to the next chapter, or in my case, like the next freaking paragraph. But even the first chapter is full of information about what could be a fairy encounter. So it's definitely one to check out. You can also read it too. And I will probably buy the physical book at some point because I need to highlight and underline. And her books are very much reference guides that you can use again and again and again. And there's loads of them. So if fairies aren't your thing, maybe it's the Morgan or maybe it's the Dagda or maybe it's, I don't know, fairy witchcraft specifically. She's got books on all of those topics and many, many more. You can also take Morgan's classes online at the Irish Pagan School. 
there's one I know for sure that's on the beliefs, mythology, and folklore of real fairies. And of course, I will have that link in the show notes. I'll pop in all of her social media as well. Make sure you tune in next week to the second half of this interview, which, like I said, will include some more of my personal experiences with the Fae in the intro. All right. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 